Super Talk Mississippi Media Production. Toyota of Brookhaven has been voted best new car dealership in Southwest Mississippi four years in a row. Come see the difference. Exit 40 Brookhaven or online at toyotabrookhaven.com. Great service, great savings. At Toyota of Brookhaven, we deliver. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome to Coast View, the show that every single day celebrates the men and women who are making Coast of Mississippi and Mississippi for that matter. Such a great place to live, work, and play. I've got a couple of quotes I want to share with you at the beginning of the show today that really apply to the conversation we're about to have. The first one is from Vince Lombardi. Uh, everybody knows who Vince Lombardi is. Uh, he was he was a famous head coach, as we, we know now. And here's what he said. The price of success is hard work, dedication to the job at hand, and the determination that whether we win or lose, we have applied the best of ourselves to the task at hand. I talk a lot about success and failure and learning from failures and willing to t- willingness to take risks and you know, we, we can never be perfect, that's for sure, but we can have a, an image of perfection, and we can strive for that and define that in sort of successful terms. We talk a lot about that here on Coast View, whether it's your personal life, your business life, or the work you do in the community. I think it's really important to understand how important hard work is to the overall uh, conversation. Here is a, here's another one from Steve Jobs. I've, I'm a big Steve Jobs fan. I've read everything that's been written about him, his book and uh, studied his life in great detail. What a transformational leader Steve Jobs was. But here's what he said. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma, which is living with with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noise of others' opinions drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Gosh, I love that one. And, uh, you know, if you if you think about entrepreneurship in Mississippi and the conversations we have about creating an entrepreneurial sort of ecosystem in Mississippi, the, the, uh, the, the really awesome conversations I have with Eric Hill from the Center of, uh, from, uh, for Entrepreneurship at Mississippi State and others. Um, we, you know, there's a, there's a lot to learn from entrepreneurs and you may not, you may not truly appreciate what I'm about to, what I'm about to say, but, uh, my friend Gerard Gibbert, who hosts middays at, with Gerard weekdays here on Super Talk from 10 to 11, 10 to one, excuse me, is uh, someone who understands everything I just said and more. And he followed his intuition and had tremendous success. And I can't wait to tell his story, but also share each other's story about how we landed in these darn chairs. It's, a, it's kind of an amazing moment. So anyway, without any further ado, let me welcome my friend Gerard Gibbert to Kosu. How you doing, my friend? Hey, Ricky. Thanks for having me. So listen, I talk about this all the time. I had over 800 conversations here on, uh, on Coast View. And I've learned so much, man. I've just... The opportunity, you know, when you're running a business, man, you don't really have time to sit and focus on individuals for a long period of time and to prepare for the conversations you have with them. But it's been a gift connecting to people. Are you? Do you often ask yourself, how in the world did you find yourself in that chair? You know, uh, given what your your past was. 
I, I do. And, and so often it's like, am I really doing this? This is kind of surreal. I, I think about what my daily routine was for so long and what it is now and, and just what the contrast there between running a, a business with my hair on fire all the time, which you're well aware of, uh, and and then doing this job. Uh, it's completely different, but, you know, not in a negative way. It's just different. Yeah. Okay. So look, let's, uh, I, I, we're going to get, we're going to kind of take a step back here in just a second and sort of retrace your steps. And as I mentioned, at one point in your career as an entrepreneur, it really mirrored my career. And uh, we'll, we'll compare some notes as it relates to that. But technology controlled a lot of our ascension in our lives. And we'll, and again, we'll come back to that. But how did you, how did you find yourself in that seat? Tell me that story. Yeah, so when I when I got out of school uh, at Ole Miss uh, with a major in accounting, uh, I majored in accounting because I I, I guess I have somewhat of a um, inclination to uh, be good at that kind of that kind of work. But you know the the traditional path is to uh, go into the public accounting world and and practice public accounting and. And back then, the goal was to get hired by one of the big eight accounting firms, now four. But, you know, around, I guess, the middle of my senior year, I said, I I really don't see myself doing that as a career. I don't think I would enjoy that. And I got some exposure, as we all do in B-School, though not, not a great deal, but to the world of computers and you know, I had figured out I'm, I'm pretty good at this and I enjoy this. I think I have more fun with that. And the firm, Arthur Anderson, uh, would actually hire folks directly into their consulting division, which focused on large scale systems uh, design, development, implementation. And they would hire people right out of school to do that. And you didn't have to have a computer science degree. In fact, they, they generally didn't hire folks from that academic background. They just wanted people that had a desire to do that kind of work that they felt had uh, good personalities, could, could uh, interact with people well, and just had a good aptitude. And, and I had talked to someone that had just graduated the prior year that went down that path and persuaded me to do the same got into that, and while I was there, the PC was introduced, the IBM personal computer. And you could just see that I was taking the world by storm. I mean, it was just incredible how that was changing, and these things were popping up around our office there at Arthur Anderson. And, you know, I started getting an entrepreneurial itch. I wanted to go home. I was traveling around the country, which is you just accept that when you work for a firm like that. They're going to assign you wherever they need you, and that's just part of the, part of the job. And I saw an ad in Byte magazine one day, B-Y-T-E, which was one of the, the, the journals for personal computers. And it was mainly focused on developers, more technical types. And there was an ad in there for MicroAge, uh, a franchise that was, that was uh, selling franchises and building out their network across the country to entrepreneurs who wanted to sell personal computers and bring that to the market locally. And I responded to that and said, gee, I'm, I'm interested. Problem is I didn't have any money. I, I had I had a lot of giddy up, but uh, you know, I didn't have any capital. Uh, and, and that's how I got interested. It was really from a Byte Magazine ad where, where, where they were soliciting franchisees. And I called them up and the, the computer land 
um, network was building out and it kind of dominated that space at the time. But you could tell they were more focused on non-business sort of applications, but still kind of catering to hobbyists or just pushing boxes, as we used to call to corporations, but not really solutions. And MicroAge attracted me because they were more focused on software and accounting software and business software, vertical software, which was my background from working at Anderson. And so, you know, that's that's how it all came about. The problem is they didn't have any money and spent a long time trying to raise money and got told no, 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 over no. 16 months, honestly, I got told no. So. Well, listen, what's interesting about you know, early early in your career, you, know, you think about what your degree was in, your time in the consulting business, you you began to really build. So, so if you think about sort of the business situation, you've got the technology that enables whatever the business might be. Then you have the business processes that are engaged in that. You've got the, the people that are engaged in that. In some cases, there's a sales aspect to that. You know, your personality, your background, <clears throat> your your sort of natural leadership abilities, and the fact that you understood that the application side of this was going to be the key to success. You were hitting on a lot of cylinders, really. I was trying to figure out, actually, from reading your bio, how old were you when you started kind of pursuing the vision around microage? Yeah, when I started pursuing it, I was 27. Yeah. Uh, so, when, I, when I finally secured financing, I was 28. And uh, when we opened in 1986, and uh, something that might be of interest uh, uh, to the Coast audience is that after having the door shut on me by numerous financial institutions and uh, potential investors that just couldn't see where this was going, couldn't appreciate it, and basically told uh, no, and I, I didn't. I, I didn't realize at the time the way I do today. If you don't have any collateral, if you don't have any security, you're not getting any financing. And I was looking for one hundred and eighty-nine thousand dollars. My business plan that I had cobbled out uh, on a compact luggable um, at the at my parents' kitchen table at the time I had cobbled out. It, it had. It had shown that I needed $189,000, which was not a whole lot of cushion, but enough to get going. And nobody would loan me that. And I was ready to hang it up. And and honestly, at that point, felt like I was going to have to move out of state to get the sort of work that I was capable of doing, that there really wasn't any work in the state to do that. And my sweet wife came to me one night, and she had been... Uh, of course, I'd been keeping her up with the progress, which wasn't a lot at the time. And she had been sharing that with her parents. Now, Julie, my wife's from Biloxi, her, her parents uh, from Holly Street in Biloxi. Hey, let's do this. Let's we'll, yeah. we'll go pick it up. We're going to pick okay. it up at Holly Street here in just a okay. second because my wife's from Biloxi, too. So <laughs> we'll, we'll share those notes as well. Hey, yeah. when we come back, we'll continue our, our conversation with Gerard Gibbard. We'll see you after this. Watch episodes of Coast View on your laptop, desktop, or on your phone or tablet by going to supertalkmsgolfcoast.com. 
His love for the coast is why he's here. It's Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I have my friend Gerard Gibbert from uh, from his uh, from from midday um, Super Talk from uh, 10 to 1 every break. He was telling us about he had seen an ad in, in Bit Magazine, Byte Magazine, Byte, yeah. and um, and for MicroAge. He wanted to do a franchise. For a year and a half, he tried to raise the money. The thing you didn't mention, during that period of time, it was really hard to get capital without any uh, collateral. <laughs> Very difficult. You learned that hard lesson, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, it still is, as you know. What what was, uh, I think, a little different during that time period, Ricky, is, is those that were around then recall, we had just come off the savings and loan crisis. And so... The uh, Resolution Trust Corporation was moving in to uh, take over various failed SNL institutions, including some here in Mississippi. And so banks were already very squeamish about uh, loaning money. I- I've told people, you know, if you had a hundred thousand dollar piece of property, you couldn't get a fifty thousand dollar loan on it, even for real estate back then. It was just really, really tight. Uh, and so it wasn't very good timing. Uh, to go to the market, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll be, I admit I was 27, as I said, and at 27, you, first of all, you feel like you're infallible, you know, everything. And I'm going to walk in these banks and, and pitch them on my idea and, and my capital needs. And they'll just stroke me a check. And uh, of course, one of them gave me the corporate party line. If you want $189,000, you need to have a $189,000 CD in the bank. Well, heck, I wouldn't be here if I had that. (laughs) Another said, you know, Gerard, I think people have all the computers they're ever going to need. And that was 1986. Mm -hmm. uh, I got that line. And just, you know, you're, you're too young. You just need to go back to the, you know, public accounting world, even though I was in, I couldn't make them understand. I work for an accounting firm. I'm in the consulting division. I don't do audit and tax returns. Um, so it was a, a lot of frustration and, and I was ready to hang it up. And uh, my, my wife from Biloxi had been sharing my progress with her parents. My father-in-law was sold vehicles at D Chevrolet there in Biloxi. And my, my mother-in-law was the uh, chief accountant at Keesler Air Force Base. They were a very modest means, old Biloxi family. Met in World War II, like so many couples of that era did, and happened to make a good decision when they first got married and bought some land out um, north of where I-10 is around the wool market exit, 19 acres, and it didn't cost anything back then. Paid on that for years and years. Felt like that'd be a good long-term asset to hold to retirement. And my sweet wife came to me one night and said, well, as I understand it, she doesn't know anything about banking and finance. You you need something that you can give to the bank so that they'll give you this money. I said, yeah, uh, that's that's called collateral security, something, an asset that they can they can um, perfect. And she said, well, you know, my parents have 19 acres uh, north of I-10. And no, I-10 was a, a wilderness, so to speak, back then. It wasn't what it is today. It wasn't the, it, the the town and the area hadn't moved that far north at that point. And she said, they're willing to actually make that available to you if that would help. And I said, well, of course that would help. <laughs> you know, I, was, um, I, I guess so just frustrated <clears throat> at the time. And, and I foolishly accepted that offer 
because that was their life savings. And so I took that deed and I went back to one of the banks and I put that on the table and I said, well, this do. And their eyes got really big and they knew at that point they had to proceed and, and make this loan. And so I, I took out a seven year loan, a typical seven year term loan. And um, we paid that off in five with every extra dime we got. Uh, my partner and I kept our salaries very low. In fact, we took a cut in pay when we left our jobs and we kept it at that level until we paid off that, that debt so that we could return that deed to my in-laws. And I gotta tell you, that was a happy day. And this is one thing, uh, both of my in-laws have since passed away. This is one thing I regret. Of course, I, I thank them as often and as much as I could for their generosity without whom we wouldn't have been able to make a go of it. But the one thing I get now, Ricky, and I, and I know you will appreciate this, you're indebted to somebody. They typically want to know how you're doing, right? They want to make sure you've got the, certainly in the commercial institutional world, yeah, you've got all kinds of reporting requirements to show that you're capable of servicing that debt. That's just part of the agreements. And during that time period, never, not once, did my in-laws ever say, hey, Gerard, how's it going? Can I see some financial statements? Not one time in that five-year period. And it, it didn't hit me then the way it has since I've been to Wall Street and raised money and had to comply and adhere with all of those reporting requirements. And, and after thinking through that, I'd like to think it's because they trusted me. And I think surely they did. But the bigger thing is they trusted their daughter. They mm -hmm. trusted their daughter's choice in husbands. And I think that's really uh, what, what um, caused them not to ever ask me, hey, how's it going? I mean, I can't even comprehend that. I'm holding their life savings and they've never asked me how it's going. I look back on that. I regret that I never shared with them before they passed away just how special and and important uh, and wise on their part that was. I regret that, and I hope they in heaven know how I feel about that and how appreciative I am. And they may have been smart enough to know, you know, if we ask that, that might make it even tougher, put more pressure and put us more at risk. Maybe that, I don't know what they were thinking, honestly, but. What's fascinating, what's fascinating to me though, about your journey, Gerard, if you think back um, when you when you went into your consulting world, the advent of the PC starts, of course, that once that came out, things were sort of on, you know, moving at light speed at that point. Then you start microwaves in the late 1980s, you get into the 1990s, and then we start to see uh, data center technology, cloud technologies begin to really start to evolve, certainly by the mid-1990s. And what, what happened is you started your microage, you, you mastered that aspect of it. But then because of this application side of you, this business-minded side of you, you began to form a lot of connections between what you've learned in microage and what you're able to do to help businesses. And that that evolved pretty darn rapidly, really rapidly, over just a few years. And suddenly you realized that what you're doing and where you could go with your business was way beyond your your micro-age world. Tell a little bit about that. Yes, uh, it's, it's a great point. So to operate a business like that, which is nothing but constant disruption and constant change, 
and reacting to that change. And people used to ask me all the time, Gerard, how, how do you keep up with all that technology? And, and I would always respond, I got to tell you, that's easy. I hire an army of people to do that. They're really smart. They do that. What keeps me up at night? And, and, and you alluded to it a bit, is the way in which it is delivered and consumed. That's, that's the change that keeps me up. It's like, where do we fit in this very complex, ever-changing ecosystem? And, and so it was from my, our early days of, I mean, really pioneering networks back then, which were not nearly the sophisticated networks we have today. There was no such thing as hubs and switches in the early 80s and even into the 90s. That was all a new thing and routers and, and um, uh, wide area connectivity. That all was not, was not even available at the time. Uh, so the build out of the Internet certainly changed things, and that kind of launched the e-commerce ecosystem prior to cloud, which really came about in the, in the um, 2000s. When we saw that, you know, there's a different way to deliver and consume this. And, and we were concerned that trying to live off this one-time project type, go out and hunt for the food every month business was just, it was going to kill us, honestly. And we came up with this idea of uh, launching a data center, one of the first commercial data centers uh, in the country and the first by far in Mississippi. And that was 2001. And we were delivering uh, cloud services before the term was invented. The term didn't come along until a few years later. Back then, we called it Application Service Provisioning, ASP. You may remember that acronym. And that's what we sold. Was um, And, and we, we had this service we called Freedom, the Venture Freedom uh, Service. And then we didn't call it Cloud Services. We called it Venture Freedom ASP. <laughs> and we built everything around that. And uh, uh, you may find this interesting as Auditor Phil Bryant was the keynote speaker when we launched the data center uh, in the Jackson State University East Center. Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman was my corporate lawyer at the time and was also the corporate lawyer for the Jackson State University Foundation. He brokered the deal that landed my data center in the JSU East Center which was built by the Allstate Corporation in the 70s. And, and uh, the first African-American Supreme Court Justice, Reuben Anderson, was on the board of Allstate. And he's the one that told his law partner, Delbert Hoseman, go to Allstate and get them to donate this building to JSU. And Delbert, I mean, uh, Reuben said, Delbert, you're crazy. They're not going to give that to them. And man, the rest is kind of history after that. Hey, when we come back after the break, um, there were some really interesting times prior to developing the data center in 2001 where um, where Gerard was on the road a lot and he was learning about life and how to pull this off and how to find success in the trenches. We'll talk about that in just a second with Gerard Gilbert. We'll see you after this, after this break. on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
Welcome back to Coast View. Middays with Gerard Gibbard. It's uh, weekdays from 10 to 1. This is a conversation I've been really looking forward to having for quite a while, I might add. Quite a while. Uh, because embedded in it is uh, sort of a, a – we, we share – journeys through business that landed us in these chairs and radio we never expected to be sitting here you can i can assure you that uh, we share a lot actually i was mentioning prior to going to the break prior to the 2001 time frame for gerard's sort of uh you know entrepreneurial story when he st- opened the first data center in mississippi he was uh, he was on the road a lot. So as microage sort of evolved, he be- began to get into some <clears throat> pretty complex <clears throat> applications. And uh, so he was commuting to places like uh, Trenton, New Jersey, for example. And about the same time, actually, I was commuting to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and to Miami for about a two and a half year period. And, uh, you know, weekly from from Biloxi involved in some projects for Knight Ritter, the company that owned the Sun-Herald. And we were reengineering the company. We were deploying new technologies. A lot of the technologies, in fact, Oracle, for example, and Sun Microsystems, the kind of stuff that he was working with in Trenton. And um, but, you know, when you're when you're in the trenches of these massive application projects like you were, that's the best place to learn about life, isn't it? I mean, that's how you succeed as an entrepreneur. Yeah, uh, this was a 40 million dollar project that uh, it's it's kind of an unusual story uh, at the time that uh, the state was going through this procurement process, which, by the way, was the third iteration. This was a Y2K project. For the New Jersey Department of Corrections, there are uh, 16 institutions in New Jersey, and each one of them were operating their their independent premise-based IBM System 36 and some old legacy software that was not Y2K compliant. And and they were under the gun and and running out of time to get this done, and they failed twice at um, getting a contract done through through an RFP process, and all the giant consulting companies had responded, of course. And we got involved through another partner we had, a document imaging partner. We were actually one of the first uh, FileNet partners, if you remember that particular very sophisticated document imaging workflow software. Uh, And FileNet was a part of this project and they knew this thing was having a hard time getting a, 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 um, a primary prime contractor. I had an employee that decided to, uh, without talking to me, <laughs> agree that we would prime this without my knowledge. And I was a little absent at the time from the company because my father was terminally ill and I was, I was attending to him. And I literally find, found out that we won this project the day my dad died. And, and this employee came to me and said, well, we won. I said, we won what? And, and she started explaining it to me. I had no idea. And <laughs> it, I could tell this was a major ordeal. It's a $40 million project for the Department of Corrections. And they had, a, they had a, quite the extensive contingency plan that, um, that proposed that the National Guard would come in and take control of these 16 institutions and these 50,000 inmates in these institutions if we couldn't get the system up and running in time. Just a little pressure. And the state, being pretty nervous about that, called upon the Gartner Group, which is a, which is one of the most prestigious IT consulting organizations on the planet, 
not far from them in New York, come in and, and essentially assess uh, the, the, the project, uh, the success of it, and the ability to complete it in time. They came back and said, you need 66 months. And the, so the folks at Department of Corrections said, Gerard, what are you going to do about that? I said, well, I can't change what Gardner Group says. We're just going to keep working and get this thing done. Um, and so that required me to commute. I had seven subcontractors that took care of various um, pieces and components of the project, very sophisticated Oracle applications. And I uh, commuted every week for 31 months and then worked on the weekends when I was back home as well to get this thing done. It was incredibly stressful. I also learned that we were upside down on the project by a few million dollars, and I had to go negotiate with the state treasurer of the, of the state of New Jersey um, to help us out. And I went to her, Ricky, and said, Madam Treasurer, I, I can still see it today sitting across from her desk. I said, I'm just going to be honest. I had an employee that didn't really take care of this the way they should have, and I'm upside down, and I'm going to go bankrupt, and I just need to let you know I got to go home and, and get my affairs together. My company's bankrupt. And she leaned over that desk, Ricky, and said, please, Mr. Gibbert, do not leave. Got to remember the time frame. You couldn't just pick the phone up and call somebody and say, hey, we got this $40 million Y2K project. We need an army of Oracle developers and network engineers and sun engineers to come in here and sweep this thing up. They weren't, there were no one available to do that. So she knew that. And she said, she said, Mr. Gibbert, do you trust me? I said, yes, ma'am, I do. And she said, I'll take care of this. Please just go back to work. And so for the next six months, I didn't hear anything wondering, am I going to be made whole here? Are they going to take care of me? And I wasn't looking to make the kind of money I should have made. I was just looking not to go bankrupt. And she took care of it. Uh, and we, we, went, we went ahead and completed the project in time, obviously. I probably wouldn't be alive today <laughs> if we hadn't. Uh, but we completed it. So we got that 66-month project done, according to the Gartner Group, in 31 months. And it was written up in the various journals for the corrections industries, the most advanced system in North America. We were well, Gerard, what's interesting to me about that story, though, if you just look at it just from a pure entrepreneurial point of view, the dogged determination that was required, the whole notion of like biting off more than you, you can chew and learning what it feels like, what it really feels like to have to live with ambiguity, have to live in a, you have to be courageous. Because when you looked in the mirrors before you went to work in the morning, you were wondering how in the world we're going to pull this off. I mean, how are we going to do this? And uh, you just find a way. I mean, I often use the word dogged determination, but that's that's really what it takes. Because they, when you're there in front of those people who are relying on you to pull that system off, they don't want to see you sweat. They want to see somebody who's in control of the situation, who can get it done. And there was a lot of you know body language reading going on between you and her. And she obviously trusted you. You had to trust her. <clears throat> but what that did to sort of unleash your mind and the capabilities of your company, and it just continued to advance your company, ultimately leading to you know the, the start of the database, uh, excuse me, the data center in 2001. You go back and look at the time frame of that. When you did that, that was a courageous move in and of itself. 
It was, a, yeah, it was a huge was. risk. It was a huge risk. And I remember, uh, as I was sharing earlier, it was, it was Lieutenant Governor Hoseman at the time was just a lawyer, and my corporate lawyer. He was also the lawyer for the JSU Foundation. And, and JSU wanted that building. They wanted to make it a high-tech center. It's the JSU East Center, and they wanted a data center. Delbert calls me and says, Gerard, I understand you got a, a data center. I had just launched a little 200-square-foot, you know, four-rack facility where we were kind of experimenting with a new business line. This may be something, so to speak. And and uh, Delbert called me and says, I understand you got one of those. I don't know what that is, but JSU wants one in their building. I need you to move it over there. Okay, Delbert, how, mu- how much square feet do they want me to take? He said 13,000. And then I went like, I went like silent, like 13,000. I just have 200 square feet in four racks. You know how expensive it is to build a 13,000 square foot data center? Now, that's nothing compared to today's modern data center. Right, sure. Back then, that was a big deal, especially for a small business like mine. And so I came up with an idea. I said, let me sleep on it. I came up with an idea, and I presented it to Delbert. I said, if we can get JSU to subscribe to services that we would deliver, things they need from that data center that would just cover my rent, I'll do it. And we, we worked that out. And that's how I ended up in the JSU uh, East Center with the data center. Still going today. And, and Ricky, I play golf every now and then with uh, uh, former Supreme Court Justice Reuben Anderson, who most people may not know, is really the person who drove the Civil Rights Museum. He's the one that got the Civil Rights Museum. Right. He's the one that did it. And every time I'd see Reuben, he'd always say, Gerard, how's it going for you? Is it going okay out there? Yes, sir. It's going fine. I said, don't you ever move that place. You hear me? I said, yes, sir. I got it. <laughs> um, but no, it's a win. it ended up being a win-win deal. And, you know, the rest is history. The The facility is, is uh, experienced, and I checked on this uh, last week, about five hours of downtime, total downtime, five hours. That includes Katrina when the whole Tri-County area was dark. All of our systems worked like a champ. We never, we never stopped computing even during Katrina, and something we're really proud of. Five hours, so we've achieved yeah. not the vaunted <clears throat> 99.999%, the five nines, but 99.9997. We're pretty, we're pretty proud of that. The way we engineered that is is quite the feat. Right here in Mississippi, there are 55,000 end-user company customers still being serviced by that facility. What's, what's amazing, and again, you know that I cut my teeth on the operations and IT side of the business, the, the amount of redundancy in systems, if you think about sort of power redundancy, you know, if you lose power, you got to have generation power. You got, I mean, this is this is not an easy feat. And if you think about it, there's this one aerial photo, a satellite photo of Mississippi after Hurricane Katrina, and virtually the entire state of Mississippi was dark. And uh, boy, you better have some really good redundant systems in place or you're going to be in serious trouble. That's a hell of a story. Yeah. Hey, when we come back, we'll talk about the expansion uh, uh, strategy, the selling of venture, and then how did he land in this role. We'll see you after this. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. 
I'm enjoying my conversation with Gerard Gibbert from Middays here on Super Talk, and it occurs to me that we probably could have gone through maybe a series of, uh, of shows to tell this incredible story. But it is a story that really prepares him well for sitting in that seat to do Middays because he understands politics and entrepreneurship and business. And you grow, you get more wise going through the kind of experiences that he went through. And you got an opportunity now sitting in that chair, Gerard, to share those experiences and make it make sense to people. And I'm excited about that. Hey, listen, in 2007, between 2001, 2007, you're growing, you're adding, eventually you get into this huge growth strategy that, that involves gobbling up other companies. Your board of directors starts to shift and change as a result of that. And ultimately, the board of directors chose a direction, I guess, something you really didn't want uh, to sell the company. You wanted to go in a different direction. But, you know, that's sort of the way of the world when you start developing a company that grows and then you sort of lose control to a board of directors. That's the way it is. But how do you how do you talk about that? Yeah, so I, I, I first should probably share that the idea came from the fact that our industry had gotten mature and we had a lot of folks just like me that had built these great businesses and they just were all hunkered down saying, you know, I don't really want to put any more capital at risk. I'm comfortable, have a lifestyle, but I got to figure something out. And so it was a very fragmented industry. I went to Wall Street in 07 and pitched the idea, put a business plan together to grow my company, serve as a platform, acquire other companies um, to, to grow strategically. And at that time, Ricky, Wall Street said, your company's worth nothing, by the way, and we don't like your strategy. But I met one person that said, I like your company. I like your management team. I like your vision. Let's do some things. Come back and, and see if we can go back to the uh, financial community. We did that, went back and uh, 13 pitched again got term sheets they were like couldn't write enough checks then they, they finally gotten what i was trying to tell them five years earlier yeah you guys are going to do pretty good here so in 2014 we closed the first transaction that combined three companies we, we bought two more we did all that with what's called cash flow debt so we preserved our equity in doing so uh the downside of that is you have to issue board seats to the to the sellers who are now equity owners of the platform and it's one person one vote so it was in 2018 that they we had gotten pretty good we had we had quadrupled the ebitda uh organically uh the strategy worked it was successful these guys saw that and said i think we can fetch a uh, pretty big penny in the market, and so we, we uh, then I had to go out and sell sell an asset I didn't want to sell. I was the chief salesperson. And that process went on about 16 months, and we ultimately sold, closed the transaction in January of 2019, uh, all cash deal to a larger version of my company that was frankly following the exact same strategy we were. So, so how how old were you when you sold the company? Now 60. 60. Okay. And I was, uh, I was about 56, 57 when I finally decided to retire. When did you, when did you start sitting in at Supertalk? Where did that relationship come about? Yeah. So I've known uh, Supertalk owner, founder, Steve Davenport for a long, long time. I ran into him in a restaurant one night. This is when the great JT Williamson had been ill and, and unable to fulfill his duties as host of the show. And uh, that was in the 2020 time frame, I believe. I have to think back through that. I, I get lost on the, uh, the years. But I ran into him in a restaurant, and, and he said, you know, you've always been a good guest. I've been a guest on JT Show on Gallo many times, talking business, technology, politics. Why don't you see if you uh, would be interested in, in, um, in hosting, uh, guest hosting? I did. 
one day went to two, two went to three, and then it, it became uh, full time in the in the twenty one uh, time frame. Of course, JT passed away, as you know, last year twenty two, and then Labor Day of twenty two, the the show uh, became Middays with Gerard, and and so roughly two years now I've been doing it full time. You're probably doing the same thing I'm doing, which is uh, every day you learn a little bit more. Every day. You, you grasp more clearly this vision that Steve had to create this Super Talk Network 12 station. He owns 26 stations, and then he has a network that goes even beyond that. Yeah. But I came from media, and uh, I always wondered about radio, where they hold in their own in this digital age. And I was really impressed. While most radio companies were consolidating and taking away sort of the local voice, Steve was doubling down on the local voice. And what it means for the power of Super Talk is pretty significant. And, uh, you know, it, what kind of evolution is going through your head about how significant that strategy is and the role that you play in having these important conversations about Mississippi? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. How many people I've encountered, and I, and I know you, you've run into the same, just across the state, doing the remotes at events and so forth, that say, you know, I rely on you for all my news. And and it, it puts a little pressure on you, honestly. I, I never really thought about myself as being the the purveyor of information and, uh, you know, the information hub, if you will. Uh, and then it really hit me that folks seem to be, in this state at least, they're more tuned in to what's going on in the state and locally. And they want to hear that from, from state and local personalities. And they, they're so turned off with the, the national news and, and the national media. They just want to focus on, on local and state. And, and we blend local and state information with, uh, with national information on the show, as, as you're well aware. So that it's hit me. Yeah, people do listen a lot. Well, we're, we're at the end of our time together. But what's interesting is that there is so much noise on the national level. We really can make a difference locally and across the state as we have these conversations that are important. The thing that impresses me most about you is the amount of time you put into your homework. You're really focused on making sure you understand these issues. I did that as well as a publisher. I do that even more so today. And it's been fun to sort of go on that journey with you, my friend. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you spending some time with me. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Ricky. Thanks for having me. It has been an absolute pleasure. This has been Gerard Gibbert, and uh, have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Mississippi Media Production.